Let's pray. Father, thank you for thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for the challenge that it is and for the way that it, it brings us closer and nearer to your heart as you teach us the depths and the profundities of your truth. Lord, open our hearts and minds to receive and to believe what you would teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, Bob told me this morning that you guys kind of left off um, where we were going in Hebrews 5. I pre- I prepped for us to start at Hebrews 6, so maybe we'll just say a few words about that end of Hebrews 5, but it really dovetails and goes together nicely. But before we do, I wanted to, to start with this, and maybe you've heard about this. There's been a growing trend, say in the last two to three years, really, of what have been called deconversion stories. Deconversion stories. It is Christians, especially evangelical Christians, who are now leaving the faith and are almost evangelizing, so to speak, uh, Christians to draw them away from Christianity and try to show them how backwards our faith is. And um, a famous one that, that has occurred in the last year or two is from a guy by the name of Joshua Harris. You probably don't know him by name, but he wrote a very famous book, a very popular book when I was in high school, I think it was, called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Have you ever heard of this book? I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Uh, as you can imagine, not a favorite book among a lot of guys uh, in my <laughs> college ministry. But um, he, uh, and he, he went deep, became a pastor, all these things. Um, and then a year or two or so ago, he announced that he was getting divorced and at the same time announced this. He wrote, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. It's really sad. It was really sad to hear from this guy. I wasn't a huge fan of his necessarily, but anytime you hear of a believer um, saying so publicly, renouncing their faith so publicly, and it's been happening too often recently. So I wanted to start just by asking you guys, either just from your own experience or just as you, as you reflect on it, why do people fall away from the faith? What are some of the reasons that, that folks turn away, fall away, as this will be the, the theme once again in our, our text today? They were never there in the first place. Okay. They, maybe they were never really there in the first place. And so it was kind of um, just a hoax or a show, and so they kind of restored to what they were actually beforehand. Yeah, Bob. The biggest ones is the fight between faith and reason or faith and science. That's true. Nowadays, that's a big reason that's given. It's the, the battle between, so-called battle between faith and reason or especially faith and science. And, well, I can't be a person of faith because I'm a person of science, which is categorically false, but many folks believe that. And part of that is, frankly, a fault of, of pastors and teachers for giving that impression that you have to choose. And so many folks will choose science over faith. Yeah, Hans. Well, I saw an episode of The uh, Chosen. Yeah. And it had Mary Magdalene going back to her old life. Yes. And Jesus asked her the question, did you think that you were never going to sin again? Hmm. And sometimes people get that idea in their head that, oh, I'm a Christian now. I'm free of sin. Right. And then, and now, how come I always fail? Yes, this is a really important point, and it, it'll go right along with the, the text today. So you become a Christian, and you find yourself still falling into the same sins. You think, well, maybe I'm not, I'm not really, or couldn't be. Yeah, Becky. Going along with what Hans is saying, I think so much of our society is um, consumerism. 
-hmm. you pick out what works the best for yep. you. You see it as something you get to pick out. Like I like their hymns. I like their architecture, architecture, and how is it going to pay off like an investment? Yes. And if yes. you're not seeing returns in your own life the way you yep. maybe erroneously had it in your head, yep. you're like, well, that church just didn't do it for me. Yes. I'll try something else. That church or maybe that Jesus didn't do it for mm -hmm. me. Yeah, that's a, a really important point that when we live in a, a consumer culture and Jesus and the message of the gospel gets peddled as though it were one more consumer item, you know, choose Jesus and here's all the benefits that the Lord's going to give to you. But wait, there's more, you know. Um, and then when it doesn't work out that way, then it can cause people to, to fall away because they think, wait a second, this isn't what I signed up for. Kind of to the point I was trying to make in the sermon today, like, if you think Jesus is just going to fix all, turn to Jesus and all your problems are going to be gone. I'm sorry to say, it's not, it's not the case. Yeah, George and then Margaret. Uh, just going along with maybe a little bit what I've said, um, a lot of people think it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant, right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I need I something that's more relevant to my life. I can just find myself. I don't need that thing. Yep. And I think we also compartmentalize yeah. too much church right to be an hour on sunday morning right you, we compartmentalize it yep and so it's like oh it's this one thing during the week but maybe i don't really need it that much yeah margaret well we had a former neighbor who was a, a college professor in the biology department mm -hmm. and he was the only christian oh in the biology department. interesting yeah and so um i know he he told us that other professors if kids had questions they would send Sure. Not to him. Right. But th that put him under a lot of pressure. Yeah. To be the only one. Yeah, for sure. Creationism. Yeah, yeah, teaching creation. Uh, when we were in D.C. this week, we went to the Museum of the Bible. And um, a, a friend and teacher from the seminary, Dr. Jeff Kloa, is now the chief curatorial officer at this museum. He's in charge of the collections. Very cool job. Uh, but I asked him what he's most proud of the museum. It's been there five years now. I said, what are you most proud of about the museum? And he said, the fact that we're still open. <laughs> I said, really? He said, we get so much pushback in this city. There's so many people who wish that it were not there, teaching what it, it, it teaches. And they try to be very um, accommodating, and they don't, they don't even say we're just Christian. I mean, they're, um, for Jews, anybody who regards the Bible as an important book, um, and even so, there's, there's that pushback. It's very hard, and in university setting as well. Yeah, Bob? One of the big things I've watched, especially with young people, is a paradigm shift to what you might call postmodernism. Uh -huh. So there is no real truth. Right. So the fact we claim a truth, yeah. they have to push it aside because there can't be. I mean, it's, yeah. it's silliness. I shouldn't say silliness. It's off base, but they're very real. There is no absolute truth. No capital T truth. I mean, you look at the deconstruction, even socially or historically, well, the scriptures take it too. Yeah. So why are you following this? So they're looking for a personal Jesus, mm. but not a Jesus necessarily of a scripture. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's interesting, uh, a few years ago, maybe a decade or so ago now, the word of the year came from Stephen Colbert. Stephen Colbert coined this word, truthiness. Mm. Um, that people believe more in truthiness than in truth. Until you start saying things that they don't want to hear, in which case, suddenly the truth becomes very absolute and you're wrong. Uh, but it's interesting how that goes. Yeah, one more, Hans. Go ahead. Well, another reason people fall away is that uh, they get changed. I have a friend who has been a, a music minister leading the groups 
out in Massachusetts for years, and they got a new pastor who said, I don't like the way that you're doing it. Yeah. And so I'm not going to even support you. Sure. So it's like, you know, yeah. what did I do wrong? You right. Know, and invariably, there's something else going on in those situations, yes. right? But suffice it to say, there's all sorts of reasons that people fall away. And it could be that they didn't have faith to begin with. Um, but it could be that they were, at one time, devoted believers. All the more reason for us to hear what the preacher of Hebrews has to say in this section of the book. Because it's a hard word. I'm not going to lie to you. It's one of the hardest passages in the New Testament for a time. It almost kept some folks from putting it in the Bible. Um, and so we're just going to get after it. Okay, how does that sound? Um, let's start. Well, let me say a few words just about verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5. Just briefly touch on that and then launch into chapter 6. So the end of chapter 5, verse 11, goes this way. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So here, the preacher is convicting his hearers, his readers, his listeners. He's convicting them and calling them to account and saying, listen guys, you ought to be a lot further along in the way of faith than you are right now. You're still just uh, having milk. And it's not even whole milk. It's skim milk, right? Oh, milk-flavored water. Um, instead of the solid food where you ought to be as believers. He's disappointed. He's discouraged. And he's exhorting them, calling them to a deeper faith. Now, I got to say, I see this still too often, um, not necessarily in our church, but in, among the church at large, among believers, of just still hanging out in the shallow end rather than hearkening to the call of our Lord. As he, he said to Peter, he said, you know, come out into the depths, right? Put down into the depths. That's where God would have us live. It's much easier to stay in the shallow end. It's much easier to stick with the, the milk rather than to go to the solid food. So here the preacher is summoning us deeper. And so he's going to continue with this theme at the beginning of, of chapter 6. So let me just continue and go on from there. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. All right, let's stop there. So first of all, number, number one under part two on your handout, spiritual maturity is a proper aim for the person of faith. Spiritual maturity is a proper aim for the person of faith. Now, within our, our Lutheran tradition, we can get nervous with this sort of thing because that sounds like, wait, is this, is this works righteousness you're talking about? Or, wait, aren't we all equal at the foot of the cross? The answer is yes, yes, yes. Okay? So this isn't about, oh, I somehow merit more grace from God or I'm somehow on a, an upper caste in the kingdom or something like that. It's about God's desire for each and every one of us that now, having been claimed by Christ, to grow up and to mature in him. You are ever and always a child of God. That never changes. But God wants his children to continue to mature and to grow in faith. And when you start to, to look for this theme, you see it show up again and again, especially in Paul's letters. He says in Philippians 3, 
Not that I've already obtained this or I am already perfect, but get this. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. In other words, the motivation for maturity is the fact that you don't need maturity to be acceptable to God. Let me say that again. The motivation for maturity is the fact that you don't need maturity to be acceptable to God. Already you have been called and claimed by Christ, and therefore, having that free gift of grace given to you, you're like, ah, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. I want to live up to how he views me, right? God views you and me perfect in his son Jesus. And now we want to make that, that uh, declaration by faith to become fact. And it will be in the resurrection of the dead. But this is what our growth in holiness, our growth in Christian maturity is in this life, is coming more into that reality. Yeah. It's like a baby is no less alive than an adult, right? Right. But an adult is not into himself or herself. Yeah. Not, I mean, maturity has a lot to do with service and mm -hmm. loving others. And I think this is the big thing. We, if we rehearse... I'm a sinner, I'm forgiven, I'm a sinner, I'm forgiven, you know, go on that theological squirrel wheel. You know? Right. Um, that's, that does keep us immature. I'm saved from sin, but what am I saved for? Yeah. So moving into a place where I start investing my life in other people. Yeah. So to me, it's just growing up as, as a human being grows up, becomes productive. Yeah, it's growing up as a human being grows up. And just as there's both of these dimensions at the same time, just as you never stop being a child, no matter how old you are, you're not, not a child, you're not, not a child of God, but you're also progressing and growing and maturing. And Bob brings up an important side of that. Like we, we all know with children, cute and cuddly as they are, much as we love them, they're also extremely self-centered, right? I mean, that's, when, and when we say somebody's acting so childish, in many cases, it's because, oh, you're acting as though you're the only one that exists. We become grown-ups, we get way past that. But, or do we? <laughs> <laughs> we get more subtle and sophisticated in our ways to make it all about ourselves. Right? Uh, but in many cases, this is what that maturing is, seeing that it's not just about me, it's about others. I want to, to serve others. And I think there's another image of, for faith that we'll come back to here in a minute. Uh, which helps us to envision that as well. But I, uh, I love this quote from St. Augustine. He says that the whole life of a good Christian is a holy longing to make progress. A holy longing to make progress. We want to grow. We want to change. I mean, in our heart of hearts, we recognize we don't want to, to stay and be the same person that we always have been. We want to continue to mature and to grow. I think he's right in this. In many cases, we just don't know how. And when our, our churches and our, our leaders aren't helping to show God's people how, then you can just get stuck. But this is the, the deep desire within the, the people of God. Now, the preacher says something here that, that could be troubling as well. He says, let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again this foundation. But I want you to understand, his, when he talks about spiritual maturity, number two, under part two here, spiritual maturity doesn't mean abandoning the foundation, but building upon it. The metaphor itself says it, right? The point isn't that you abandon the foundation, like, okay, let's go lay another foundation. or build. The point is, you lay a foundation, not just to leave it, but to build upon it, right? As somebody who's trying to, to build a house, like, this speaks to me. 
Right? I don't just want to lay a foundation. I want to see the thing through. You want to build upon it. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, which should tell us all we need to know about whether or not we should leave the foundation behind. No, of course not. Jesus is the foundation. Paul goes on to say, we're seeking to build, build upon the foundation of Christ with lives that are true and faithful to that foundation. As Jesus says similarly in Matthew 7, familiar image, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus, the rock, our foundation. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So he's calling us to build, but to build on that foundation. You don't abandon it, but you build upon it. Just as a, a side note almost, it's really interesting uh, number three here, the preacher lays out a kind of anti-catechism that outlines essential Christian doctrine. And I don't want to belabor this, but it's interesting to get this insight from the very earliest days of the church as he kind of sets out, here's your core Christian doctrine. And it is a kind of, I say anti-catechism because he's saying, let's you know, move beyond this foundation or build upon it. But notice the six elements of this. One, repentance from dead works. Isn't that the, the sermon that we hear over and over again in Acts? That's the first call of the, the Christian, for the Christian, repent and turn away from those dead works. And then, right along with that, the other side of the coin, faith toward God. Repent and believe in the gospel. Then he says, instruction about baptisms. You might wonder, why is that plural? <clears throat> and it's probably because he's writing to or preaching to addressing um, uh, Jewish people who had many different kinds of washings, ritual washings. And so they had, in a sense, baptism. So now he's teaching, he has taught them about uh, Christian baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as opposed to and distinguished from the other washings and baptisms that they knew as Jews, right? Or perhaps the baptism of John um, that preceded the baptism of our Lord. Next, he says, the laying on of hands, uh, which traditionally would go hand in hand with the gift of baptism. We see this in the book of Acts. So there would be the gift of baptism and then the laying on of hands and the prayer for the Holy Spirit. These things were um, of a piece. They all kind of went together. And then a couple of things about the end times, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal judgment. You know, you lay this out here, and this is a basic Christian doctrine. This is the, the kind of catechism. But he says we want to build upon this. We don't want to just stick with these, these basics, but we want to build upon it and continue to, to fill in those parts of the story as it were. Uh, any questions about that, uh, the, the catechism or the things that he includes or how he phrases it, anything like that? Okay, so he says we want to, to build upon this foundation and this we will do, verse 3, if God permits. <clears throat> so number four on your handout, spiritual maturity ultimately depends on the work of God. And this is um, alluded to in two ways here in these verses. First of all, it says... Our translation, the ESV, says let's leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Uh, but the word there for go on, the Greek word pheromatha, is literally, it's in the passive voice, be carried on. Okay? With the assumed that God is the one who's carrying you on. The Holy Spirit is the one who's carrying you on. So let's be, allow ourselves to be carried on. And similarly, if God permits, 
Our spiritual maturity is not dependent upon our wisdom and our ingenuity, but it's on God and our uh, soliciting God and his help, his growth in us through the Spirit. And Paul gets at this with the image of the body in Ephesians 4. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We draw our life from Christ, our head, and so the body continues to grow. Now, can can you force your body to grow in a certain way? You cannot, right? As much as us shorter people might wish that we could just force ourselves to grow, right? Uh, but can you keep yourself from growing? You can, right? If you, if you uh, deny yourself or are denied basic sustenance, then you're not going to grow. You're not going to thrive. You might even die. We can't force ourselves to grow. We receive those gifts of God through which he is working on us. We can uh, stunt our spiritual growth if we're not receiving those gifts and continuing to be nourished by them. Does that make sense? I don't want to push the metaphor too far, but uh, I I think there's a lot of truth to that. So the bottom line for these first few verses is the baptism isn't merely a ticket to heaven, but the beginning of a journey. And this is that other image I alluded to a minute ago, which I think is helpful. This is a, a classic image in the history of the church in thinking about the life of faith, is that it's a journey. Jesus says, come, follow me. On the uh, drive down to Washington this past week, we were listening to, well, we were listening to kind of an abridged kid's version of the Pilgrim's Progress. Mm-hmm. You guys remember the story of the Pilgrim's Progress? It's called Little Pilgrim. Um, but it, it traced the, the same story. And uh, I think it was the first novel, actually. I, I seem to recall that from, you know, 1600s or something like that. Um, but it's an allegory of the Christian life, of coming to, to Christ, knowing Christ, and walking with him. The main character's name is, of course, Christian. And one of the things that really struck me about it is that Christian is making this journey, and he talked about his burden. That was kind of inspiring me with the the sermon today, too. He was talking about how he's carrying this burden until finally he comes to the cross. He comes to the king, and the king takes away his burden, takes it off his shoulders, and he's free. And I'm listening to this. I'm looking at it. I'm like, hmm. We're only like 12 chapters deep, and there's like 50 chapters here. I'm like, I, it, you think that's going to be the end. Okay, he struggled. He's made it to the cross. His burden has been released. Now he's free. The end. It's not. That's barely a quarter of the way into the story. All the rest of the story is that now, having been claimed by the king, now the pilgrim's journey has really just begun. The, the challenges that he's going to face are just getting started. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's actually true to the way that the Christian faith goes, right? That we are, are brought to Christ, are claimed by him, we're baptized, and then we'll just think about the, the life of our Lord. Jesus gets baptized, and what's the first thing that happens right after that? He gets thrown out into the, into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted. I think it's in Mark's gospel, and even says explicitly that the Spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted. Like, how's that for a birthday gift, right? Oh, thanks. Uh, but this is the, the Christian life, that pilgrimage, the journey of faith. Is, it's a lifelong thing. It doesn't end with baptism. It starts with it. That, to me, I think is a very helpful image when thinking about 
the, the challenges and the, the trials, temptations that we undergo as believers. So thoughts about that, reflections about this journey of faith and how that image helps us to think about our, our pilgrimage? You have to remember that you're taking that foundation with you on that journey. Yeah, so yeah, now the image gets harder. You're yeah. carrying the, the foundation. But yes, that's right. Um, or maybe to use the image from uh, our epistle reading from Romans today, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a very baptismal image, right? We are clothed with Christ in baptism, Galatians 3 says. And so you don't strip down as soon as you get started, right? <laughs> you carry Christ with you. Now you are clothed in him. You take up the spiritual armor. I mean, we can just keep, keep going with this, right? And you continue on the journey of faith. Yeah. The deeper you go into that journey of faith, or the more you're committed to his kingdom coming and your participation in it, the more the cross for you becomes real. Yeah, that's right. Because you're just, I mean, the deeper you go, the yeah. more helpless you become. Yeah, the deeper you go, the more helpless you become. It's not that you need Jesus less, but that you become, you depend on him more, right? You depend on him more and more recognizing how much you need him. It's a sign of spiritual immaturity, in fact, to think, you know what? I don't really, I don't really need to pray. I think I'm, I've pretty well got this. I mean, I'm really coming along. I've moved beyond the need for prayer. It's like, oh, gosh, okay. You don't realize how badly you, you need to pray <laughs> precisely in that moment. Yep, that's right. All right. Well, I've stalled as much as I can. Let's go on to the next part. And this is the hard knot of Hebrews. That phrase comes from Martin Luther. Um, Luther had problems with Hebrews. And um, I don't want to belabor this, but let me just briefly um, give a little bit, because I think it's, it's helpful, um, some of the ways that the, the canon came together of the New Testament. So within the canon of the New Testament, by which we mean the, the canonical books, the 27 books of the New Testament, there were two groups within the early church. They were known as the homologumina and the antilegumina. Okay? The homologumina means they were all, all spoken together. So the homologumina were these homola, homola, homologumina. How do you say that? Right? Um, means speaking the same, speaking the same. Homo, same, legumina, speaking. Okay? These were the books of the New Testament, which is 21, 22 of them, the vast majority, which everybody in the early church agreed, this is the word of God, this belongs in the Bible. That includes all the Gospels, the book of Acts, the the epistles of Paul, these were all homologumina where there was this honestly supernatural unanimity with, among early Christians, like this is God speaking, this belongs as part of our, our canon. But there were five or six books known as the antilegumina, which means spoken against, anti, spoken against, in many cases just by a small subset. But there was such a desire for, um, for there to be consensus among the church. Like, we're not messing around here when we talk about the canon. We want everybody to be on the same page. That there, um, there was uh, more of a slowness to receive Hebrews, James, 2nd and 3rd John, 2nd Peter, and Revelation. I think that's it. Um, Hebrews, James, 2nd and 3rd John, 2 Peter, Revelation. Uh, for varying reasons, those books were spoken against by some people in, in the early church, saying, I'm not sure that those do belong in the canon. Hebrews was one of those. And the principal reason, well, two. One was that we don't know for sure who wrote it. Okay? And so that was a, that was a key 
um, criteria of canonicity was that it was, um, the, the book was written by either an apostle or a close confrere of an apostle. So Matthew, he's an apostle. Paul, an apostle, one untimely born. But then you get Luke, not an apostle, but best buds with Peter, and so on. Um, Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it, who composed it, so uh, not so sure about that. But then secondly, this, what Luther calls this hard knot of verses 4 through 6 of chapter 6, which seemingly teaches that after uh, you come to faith, that if you fall into sin or you fall away, that there can't be repentance, you can't come back. Let me just read the, the verses here, and we'll, we'll go into it. Verse 4, he says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Oof, just strong words, right? If you're reading that and you're like, I'm not sure I've heard that. Uh, for reasons that might not surprise you, this reading is not included in our lectionary. It doesn't show up in the three-year cycle or the one-year cycle. Um, it was a struggle within the early church. Eventually, they hashed it out. Hebrews was included in the canon. Okay, So I'm not telling you this should not be, be part of your Bible. But it, it did take a process. Um, and part of it was for Christians to recognize, okay, what is this saying? Can we repent? Can we come back to the faith? Or is it one of these things that you become a Christian, sort of like what Hans was saying before. You become a believer, and then you fall into sin, and then, well, there's just no hope for you. You're, you're lost. That would be a very sad state of affairs indeed. There were even folks um, within the first few centuries of the church that um, put off being baptized until very late, perhaps even their deathbed. This was the case of Constantine, Emperor Constantine. They put off being baptized until perhaps their deathbed because they're like, if I can't repent, if I can't come back to faith after I'm baptized, then I'm going to put off being baptized until the very end. And then we'll get baptized, then I'll just die. And hopefully I didn't sin in that short time. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong here, but if I'm not mistaken, this is part of the origin of the, um, the Roman Catholic teaching of last rites. Because last rites is like this one last sacrament. Get your last booster shot of grace right before you die to make sure that you're going to pass through the pearly gates or at least into purgatory, more likely. Um, and so all of this is kind of tied up. You can see why it's a hard knot. And I don't want to just cut the Gordian knot, as it were, and just say, oh, I mean, this is what you would do if you were like, well, so Hebrews isn't in the Bible. That was easy, right? No, that's, uh, you can't do that. We need to wrestle with it a little bit more. Go ahead, Bob. There were big fights in the early church about those who kissed Caesar's yes. bust. That's right. And then they repented in times that yeah. were less persecution, and then the church was wondering whether they could come back. Yes. So this was part of um, the, the, the trial that was foisted upon the church that forced them to answer this question. So um, Bob's saying there were um, some very severe um, persecution, waves of persecution. Um, and during that time of persecution... Some Christians, including some pastors and bishops, uh, recanted of their faith, publicly apostatized to save their skin, basically. And so there was this, this question, this crisis among the church, like, can these guys be restored into the fold? 
Can they come back into the communion, into the, the fellowship of Christianity? I mean, they have publicly renounced it. They betrayed the Lord. Like, in that moment, when he who confesses me before men, I also will confess, but he who denies me, I will deny, Jesus says. And so they really had to struggle with it and wrestle with it. Now, as it happens, as the church wrestled through that, they did say that it was, it was possible to repent. And part of the reason they said that, because there were some who were saying, should, should they be rebaptized? And part of the reason um, St. Ambrose, in particular, the 4th century, said, no, they shouldn't be rebaptized, and they can come back. Because when it says here in Hebrews 6 that they're crucifying once again the Son of God, what that presupposes is that they have been crucified with Christ already, Ambrose said. And said, so you were crucified with Christ already in baptism. This is Romans 6 talk. This is Galatians 2 talk. You can't re-crucify Jesus. Already in baptism, you were crucified with him. So you can't be re-baptized. You can't re-crucify Jesus. What you can do and what you must do is to return to that baptismal faith. Return to um, that, having already been joined with Jesus through his death and his resurrection. That was kind of where they landed. Uh, but it, it was a long struggle. And still, when we hear these words, we don't want to take them lightly or poo-poo it. Hans, did you? Yeah, Simon Peter had that exact problem. Oh, we'll get to Peter. This is, this, you're, you're spot on. That's exactly right. Um, so having laid out kind of all that introduction to, to these verses, let's walk through it a little bit. So first of all, let's just make that connection with the preceding verses. Number one, under part three on your handout, spiritual maturity is a necessity because apostasy is a possibility. Spiritual maturity is a necessity because apostasy is a possibility. Falling away from faith is a possibility. And this is not, um, this is not a, a point of unanimity among all Christians, among all Protestant Christians. Okay? Um, so there are um, different branches of Christianity that teach something, well, it will sometimes be called once saved, always saved. Okay? Um, or within the, the Calvinist tradition, they have their acronym TULIP, and the, the P, which has you know, total depravity, um, U is unconditional election, L is limited atonement, which is problematic, um, I is irresistible grace, you can't resist God's call, but then P is the perseverance of the saints, which is a fancy way of saying once saved, always saved. That those who are true believers will always believe you cannot fall away. You cannot jump ship from faith. And there are scriptures that would point to that. You know, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and no one is able to snatch my sheep from my hand. Uh, but conversely, a lot of the New Testament exhortations don't make, not just Hebrews 6, but throughout the New Testament, don't make any sense if it's not a possibility for believers to fall away from the faith. I mean, why does Paul even need to write and to, to call Christians to repentance if it's not a very real live possibility that they could abandon the faith? As indeed he talks about um, some of his own um, uh, confederates and fellow um, disciples who Demas, who uh, we learned Demas was one of the, the devout followers. He was going along with Luke and Paul and then he fell in love with this present world and walked away. So suffice it to say as, as Lutherans, we don't subscribe to this notion of once saved, always saved or the perseverance of the saints. We believe that Jesus says that no one can snatch them from my hands. We, we cling to that. But at the same time, paradoxically, we take seriously when it says, hey, listen, 
You very well could fall away. Apostasy is a possibility, so spiritual maturity is a necessity. It's a continued life of, of repentance. All right, but let me, let me pause there for questions or, or pushback or clarifications about that. That's, I mean, that's a, big, that's a big ball of wax right there, but perfectly clear. Good. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus said, unless he shortened those days, even the elect. Yeah, even the elect. So life can get so profoundly difficult and anti-God that yeah. we are tempted to become cynical, yeah. which is apostasy. Yeah, I mean, to, to develop that kind of spiritual cynicism, hard-heartedness, which then cuts us off from our living root. And I uh, referenced there the, the parable of the sower in Luke 8 and elsewhere. Jesus tells the disciples, he says, look, you're going to cast the seed, and there will be those who receive it with joy, who believe. And then the cares of this world come and the anxieties of life and their fruit does not, and their, the seed does not mature and it gets choked out and it dies. Jesus tells us that. that's his programmatic parable. This is a reality that we need to face as, as believers, as the church, that it's a possibility to fall away from the faith. Now some will say, ah, but there, Jesus says that in the apostles, the epistles, and it's just to kind of to scare us, to keep us um, you know, on the straight and narrow, because if there isn't some element of fear, fear is such a powerful motivator that he's just doing that to try and scare us, but that ultimately no, God's not going to lose any of them. <clears throat> Could be. Do I want to stake my life on it? I do not. I don't want to assume that it doesn't matter if I fall away from faith or renounce Christ because, oh, he'll, he'll cover it. Could be. I pray that on the last day, he will. By divine fiat, gather all in. And every tongue confess joyfully that Jesus Christ is Lord in their heart and believe it. I pray for that. I hope for that. But I certainly can't count on it. I mean, the scriptures just won't let us go there. Won't let us assume that that's the case. Okay, yeah, go ahead, Hans. Is that what uh, Luther was fighting against with uh, the Jubilee and indulgences of, oh, uh, Here's your piece of paper. It takes care of all your sins, past, present, and future. Sure. Well, I mean, with indulgences just in general, he's said, if you have the indulgences, why do you need Jesus, right? Yeah. It was just a matter of you got your, your paper. Um, it, it cuts Jesus out of the equation completely. Right. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of problems with that. I think Luther's big issue with this is everyone was scared out of their wits Everyone was scared, yes. And so this here would just drive them back to terror of conscience. Yes. Because they, he's, he's working his tail end off to show grace by faith alone. Right. And then this comes along and says, oops, how is this possible? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Luther is ever and always finally a man of the gospel. When he has that recovery uh, of the gospel, now he's always going back to it. And he recognizes, he knows what it's like to be a scrupulous Christian who's concerned about his, you know, his spiritual punctiliousness and trying to be faithful to the Lord no matter what. And he says, oh, we read a text like this. This is hard not. And people can come to think, oh, am I really a true believer? Maybe I'm somebody who's already fallen away from, from Christ. Now, in fact, I think this text teaches us just the opposite, um, ultimately. But on the face of it, you read that and you think, oh, gosh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not one of the elect. Maybe I'm not chosen of God. Now, as I'm looking at it, it seems the time's gotten away from me a little bit, uh, which doesn't surprise me because this is some really deep, good stuff. So, um, 
We're going to stop there. We'll pick up with this next week. And we'll continue trying to untie this knot a little bit and seeing uh, what God is teaching to us. As you continue to meditate upon it, though, bring your questions next week. This is, this is a big teaching. This is really important. So if you've got questions or objections of your own or others you've heard, bring them next week and we'll continue into this topic. Thanks very much. God be with you.